Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 137. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are continuing our countdown to the reopen of Disneyland Resort in Anaheim, California. So why not discuss a film that a defunct land is based off of? Why not? It's kind of a hot topic now because of what's replacing this attraction. Correct. And we're talking about 1998's A Bug's Life. Which is now being replaced by the Avengers Campus. Yeah, we had just missed it, actually, when we went out to Disneyland for, well, for the first time, for the only time. I think they closed the land about three months before we went. So we still saw some of the signage, but it was mostly just the construction walls. Yeah, I remember like a dirt pit and a little (laughs) garden and there was a sign with the Bugs Life. And we were like, oh, that would have been nice to see. Yeah, but we just missed it. But yeah, I mean, you can still go see It's Tough to Be a Bug at Walt Disney World. Not one of your favorites. No, I'm not. I hate to say it. I'm not overly enthusiastic about that attraction. I feel like you're in the majority. Yeah, I don't I don't know anybody. And and Lou Mangiello says it all the time. This could be your favorite attraction. But I literally don't know anybody that has said that that is their favorite attraction (laughs) at Walt Disney World. It's certainly not my favorite, but unpopular opinion I think it's a great attraction just because of the way much like the Laugh Factory with Monsters Inc really makes you feel like you're stepping into the film I think it's tough to be a bug does that even better in some ways you know you go in the queue and they have all those really cute Broadway playbills but they've been modified with some really great bug puns and Once you get into the attraction itself, I mean, they really give you almost every aspect of the film. And I I mean, I always realize that because I've gone on the the attraction. I've seen the show enough times to to remember things from the movie. But I haven't admittedly watched this in a while. And looking at it now, I was kind of like, wow, they really hit on almost every single scene, every bug. They really did. I, I think they did a great job with it. Yeah, I think they did. We we saw this one in theaters. I remember really liking it a lot as a kid. Similarly, um, I haven't watched it in a while, so I was really excited to kind of revisit this one. This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and shop for all of your straw charm needs. We are introduced to Princess Ada as she is being trained by her mother to eventually take over as queen. As the ants are collecting grain, we meet Flick, an inventor who is trying to speed up the process prior to the offering, an annual event in which a group of grasshoppers eat the food that the ants have collected uh, in exchange for protection. When Flick accidentally sends all of the food into the water, this infuriates Hopper, the leader of the grasshoppers, 
and he says that they will return before the rainy season and will essentially take all of the food that the ants have collected. Flick volunteers to leave the island, as they call it, to find bigger bucks, uh, bigger bugs to help them against Hopper, which thrills the rest of the ants because... Quite honestly, they just can't wait to get rid of him. The only help he can find comes in the form of Francis, Heimlich, Slim, Manny, Gypsy, Dim, Rosie, Tuck, and Roll, failed circus actors who mistake Flick for a talent agent, so they think they're going on to another acting gig. They don't realize that they are going to return to this island to be warriors. So Flick and the gang return to the island, but Princess Ada is skeptical. When the circus bugs realize why they've been brought there, they want nothing to do with it, but as they attempt to escape, they are attacked by a bird. And after a daring escape, they are greeted with the sound of applause and agree to help Flick in building a fake bird to scare off Hopper. They assemble the bird and await Hopper's return, but P.T. Flea, the owner of the circus, arrives and exposes the circus performers, and the colony turns on Flick as he is exposed as a liar, so he and the rest are banished. A furious Hopper arrives to find that there is no food that has been collected because the ants spent all of their time building this fake bird and is intent on taking all of their food, killing the queen as well. So Dot, the other princess, and she is the younger sister to Ada, she leaves to go find help and comes back with Flick and the circus performers. While the uh, circus performers distract Hopper's gang, Flick and the Blueberries, the children of the ant colony, unleash the bird, which works until it is accidentally set on fire by P.T. Again, Hopper is infuriated. The ants rally together and fight off the grasshoppers while Hopper is taken by a bird and fed to its babies. And uh, that's kind of it. They all live happily ever after. After <laughs> that, it's really, it just ends like that. Um... Okay, so let's let's get into this here. Um, I said I saw this movie in theaters, and I remember seeing it in theaters, and, and we had seen Toy Story as well, but what stood out to me, especially as a kid, is how in-depth this world was that they created. And I remember seeing it on the screen, and it... I mean, I was impressed with Toy Story. I think everybody was because it was the first of its kind, but this was so unique because of the world building here. And I, we have talked about world building so much on this show, especially in recent history, discussing The Incredibles. I feel like this movie tends to get overlooked. Right, because Toy Story does such a great job, and it's one of my favorite things about it, is that you're meeting all these characters and you're blown away by these toys coming to life but they establish everybody's role and then once Woody goes over moving day and you need a moving buddy yeah it's just so structured and so regimented and it's hysterical that they have their own little world and their own little hierarchy but what better way to do that than with ants Right. I mean, and they're essentially doing the same thing. You you have royalty and you have these worker ants that are collecting this grain for these grasshoppers as protection. Like it's so it's it's so in line with Toy Story and, and even Monsters Inc. because in the same way they built this amazing world and these monsters are going to work and there's a hierarchy there and there's a purpose. Um, I think it's one of the things that Pixar does so very well. 
But this came before Monsters, Inc. I mean, yeah. this is, and it, it happens with every sophomore, whether you're a singer and it's your album, you know, the follow-up movie, they, there's always that stigma around the sophomore release. And are you going to be able to recapture that same magic? Um, but what I'm talking about is as far as everybody just having a role, it's, it's so true to life. Like when you watch Ants, every single one of them has a function and, right. you know, it, it's to support the queen and, and keep the colony going. And they really do a good job of just cutting right to the chase and, and getting you in there and setting that up. Yes. Um, because, you know, you see that they're collecting food and one of the first bits, I, I think this is hysterical, is that one ant has a meltdown because there's a, a leaf falls down and there's a gap in the line and mm -hmm. it just throws them. Yeah, and I think they said, oh, we, we lived through the great stick of 93. It was like <laughs> something, it was very, very funny, but you're right. They didn't know exactly what to do at first because everything is so mechanical and everything is just so kind of mundane and routine for them that to, just to throw it off by even a little bit was like mind-numbing to them. And it really does speak to the bigger picture because part of the theme of this film is about thinking for yourself. Well, that, that's the entire movie, right? I mean, it's that's, Flick's that's everything. It's character, it's Hopper's motivation, absolutely. But it's it's such a subtle thing that it, it basically gives away the entire movie up front. Yeah, and you know, it's that's the thing. Like, I was able to sum up this movie very quickly when we discussed the plot. And for a movie that has characters, we're going to talk about the characters in a, in a while here, I think for characters that do have a lot of depth and for a movie that kind of does make you look in the mirror, because I think, I think everybody can get a little something out of this movie because there's a lot of self-reflection that happens. I mean, it's, it's a pretty straightforward plot, right? I mean, there's, there's, I, I say this and it's not, it's not meant to insult anybody, but it's pretty straightforward. It's not nearly as layered as something like the Incredibles. Or even Toy Story. Character-wise. But it's not until we're starting to really open this up now that I'm realizing there are more of those subplots and there are more of those subtle moments that speak to bigger ideas. Like thinking for yourself and like the idea of the individual versus the community. Right. And as you pointed out before... They don't waste any time in developing any of that. And I really, I like the setup for this whole thing. I like that their function is to collect this grain to buy themselves protection from these grasshoppers. I like that they, they start it right here. You know, sometimes you get a movie, I didn't, like for example, it works in Zootopia when you see Judy Hopps as a kid want to be a cop and get beat up by that fox and she doesn't let it knock her down. Right. That's right. I don't know when to give up in spite of the fact that that line is horribly cheesy. It works there. I don't need to see Flick as a young inventor get made fun of and then continue this life as an adult. Like I like where they start this movie a lot. Absolutely. Especially because when they intro Flick... His invention is so great for both the character and the story. You know, it establishes that he's thinking outside the box, that he doesn't really fit in with the group. 
And it sets up a bigger conflict, which I don't think they hit on enough. We know that they're gathering all of this food for the offering. But Flick, in a very quick line, says, we never have enough after the offering to feed us. I feel like, and I'm wondering if if that was just a subplot that kind of fell by the wa- the wayside. I feel like that would have been worth exploring. The consequences of they don't have enough food now to, to get them through the winter. Like, that's a big problem. And I feel like that's something that they just should have hit on a bit more. Yeah, I agree. There could have been more drama in that aspect. And you're right. It's it's a throwaway line and it doesn't really come back around. I mean, I don't it, it doesn't hurt the story by not delving into it more, but I think you're right. There could have been something there had they chosen to go into that a little bit further. And they just didn't. Right. It's not a bad throwaway line, but it shouldn't have been thrown away is what I'm saying. I think the more important thing here is that Flick is thinking for the colony, right? Because, you know, you get these Wayne Zielinski types and he wants to sell his invention. He sees there's a bigger picture, but ultimately he's doing it. Well, he's doing it for for himself so he can support his family, get a grant invent something else you know that's how the wheel keeps turning in this case you have somebody that's doing it because he recognizes that in in regards to an entire society which these ants are they have let themselves fall by the wayside and i think that it speaks a lot to how unselfish he is more than anything else in spite of the fact that he is his own foil Right. And then that gets thrown in his face because he is accused of thinking of himself because it seems like he doesn't know when to quit. I love that you said Wayne Zielinski, because even though Randy Newman composed this, that first scene where we meet Flick and see his invention, it screams, honey, I shrunk the kids. It sounds just like that opening, you know, where the baseball is making its way to the path of the laser beam. Yeah. And this movie came out, I think it was, what, nine years after I after Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? It was eight or nine years after. I want to say Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was 89. That's so funny because looking back on that now, that doesn't seem like a huge chunk of time. But as we were growing up and living through it, you know, and especially with Toy Story when it was like, oh my God, they made this entire movie in a computer. That seems like so many more years have advanced than just eight or nine. Mm-hmm. So now his invention knocks all the food into the water and Hopper says, we're coming back for everything later. He takes off. They can't wait to get rid of him. Um, he volunteers to go. At first, Princess Ada's not going to let him go because she goes, he's never going to come back alive. And the rest of her circle basically goes, yeah, he's not. So let's send him. It's it's very funny, but you do feel bad for Flick at the same time. That they just like they they will go to that extreme to just make him go away. Oh, they're totally willing to put him out to pasture. Um, before we get too much further ahead, though, I do want to circle back to something. I I love the idea of the grasshoppers of as this motorcycle gang because yes. the ants do a good enough job of setting it up that they're hoppers this foreboding person that's going to come and take all this food but it it just delivers when when they all come crashing through the anthill um but i find it interesting where 
Ada is so quick to throw Flick under the bus um, because he did cause this accident. He did cause the food to topple over. It is entirely his fault. But it does delve into this idea of the individual versus the group again because she's so quick to point the finger at Flick. And Hopper calls her out and and says, you're the leader. This is just as much your responsibility as anyone else's. And it seems so harsh in the moment, but I totally think she deserved it. Yes, she did. And I think that that's kind of something that, even as an adolescent, revisiting it as an adult... I hate to say it, but it's like, yeah, you know, that's true. I mean, I've I've been a manager at a number of jobs. You've managed at a number of jobs. And and the fact of the matter is, one of your employees screws up, it's your fault. It's not their fault. It's your fault because you should have trained them better or you should have had an eye on them or you should have this or you should have that or you shouldn't have hired them. It will always fall back on you. And I kind of like that that's sort of a lesson that they teach here, but they make it very approachable. Like, I don't... I, I feel like the brilliance of this movie is the way they set up this hierarchy with the ants and even with Hopper and, and his gang. It, it's not over the head of a child. I think it's very much approachable, approachable and they can follow what's going on. Right, but even more relatable the older you get. Correct. So Flick is sent out and really the only person that believes that he's going to come back and be successful is Dot. And he leaves. He gets to this city. And oh, my God. It, it's it's an incredible... I Like, I don't want to spoil my review. This movie is... Let's just say, this movie's forgotten about. And, it, and it's a damn shame. Because for all of the talk of world building we have done, I watched this the other day and I go, oh my God, how did I forget about all of this? Right, especially because we've recently sung the praises of things like Zootopia, like Monsters, Inc., like The Incredibles. And and how do you forget this brilliant city setup? Like even just th- those subtle things where they have a lightning bug changing the traffic light. Yeah. So brilliant. And I love when you you know, when, when you see the circus actors and they're in that tent and instead of having grandstands, it's egg cartons, you know, it's, it's stuff and that nice cube tray. it's, it, it's things that would be sourced by a bug, by a, perhaps a rodent, you know, as disgusting as that is to say, but we are, we're talking about insects here. It's not something that they built. It's something that they found and they, utilized it as something else they retooled it as something else. like everything about it is just so good again honey i shrunk the kids comes to mind which is not something that i thought was going to be a comp to this movie but i I guess it is when you're talking about being that small and on that level um you know it, it was different i mean obviously it's a live action film but the way that the the kids have to go through this huge journey to get through the yard and n- everything Nick has ever dropped in the lawn helps them out along the way. So it's just kind of these gifts that they come across at random here. This is a bug's life. So this is what they're doing. Like you said, it has to be sourced. Yeah. And I think what they do here is, to touch on what you just said, there there's a pull from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids because we've seen it before, 
But if you didn't necessarily point it out to me, I'd never confuse those two films. And that goes beyond the fact that one's live action and one's animated, and they're almost 10 years apart from their release date. It's that this is unique enough. I would never... I have, I never have, and, and I never will, sit there and watch this film and, and look at the world build or look at some of the items that they utilize and go, yeah, that makes sense, but you could tell that that's just p- taken from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. It's, it's original enough where you would never confuse or accuse. You know what I'm saying? Right. No, and I, I feel like there was a lot of thought put into the things like you said with the with the stands mm-hmm. uh where it's an ice cube tray and it's a candy box i mean obviously it's it's different than the lego that's a toy right it was left there and honey i shrunk the kids and could they have like you said done a lego in this yeah size wise it works but you have to think about things that are realistically discarded and i think that's where this was just so clever what it also reminds me of in a way too um there's a lot of scenes in this movie toy story you go from andy's room to the rest of the house to pizza planet and back again there's and and sids SIDS, yeah and sids there's not too much there you're not traveling a lot here and again this is where i can't believe you know we haven't really thought about this movie with all of the other reviews that we've done recently because this was really the first one to establish a really solid world and then the main character leaves and they do something even better or more clever like this predates Wreck-It Ralph where he's got this great 8-bit game and it's cool and it all works and then he leaves his arcade game and goes into another one and it's a million times better or with Zootopia where you know they make you fall in love with Judy Hopps and and then she takes you to this amazing city. Um but this was really the first of its kind that did that where you know we we have this main setting and they did such a great job of establishing the characters and the function and then they turn the whole thing on its head. Yeah. And I love the scene in the bar where the confusion happens where Okay, so Francis, the ladybug, is getting catcalled by flies at the circus. And she does not take kindly to it. This character is voiced by Dennis Leary. So if you haven't seen or have forgotten about it, just I'm going to put that in perspective. So she tells them off. And they come back for her because they're ready to start a fight at this bar. And the circus performers decide that they're going to do as they call it the Robin Hood because they're trying to they're trying to scare off these flies all Flick sees as he walks up are warriors he has no idea that they're performing an act from the circus he sees characters dressed and acting like Robin Hood And he believes that these are real warriors. It's his sole purpose for being there. It's hilarious because we're on the outside looking in, so we know exactly what's going on. But I think the setup here is really well done. All I can think of when I watch that scene is the hangover. Classic (laughs) mix-up. Yeah, really. (laughs) Um, I do want to circle back to, uh, to Francis, though. Because... I honestly wasn't sure if it was supposed to be 
this gruff lady voiced by a male, but I think the 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 joke about Francis is supposed to be that it is a male ladybug that is constantly because I think he says at one point not all ladybugs are girls. I think it isn't actually in that scene when when he's getting hit on, or so, maybe it is a little bit I, later on when he when they go back to the ant hill. All right, so, but I think that's the joke. So I may have missed that because. I know that at one point the blueberries make him the den mother. I thought they referred right. to him as her a couple of times. So you, I think you're you're probably right. You are right, actually, that he is a male ladybug that is constantly confused with a female and having Dennis Leary's voice come out of a ladybug is hysterical. But I actually think that if, if I have a criticism, I didn't think I had many criticisms with this movie. If I do, I actually, I, I, I was kind of confused by that. Like, I, like, looking back on it now, and perhaps it was as clear as day and I just missed it, but I thought that they referenced him as being a female so many times that I guess it must have been a joke. And I know that he stopped correcting them after a while, so I think that by the end, perhaps I had just given up the notion and just thought, oh, it's just funny they put Dennis Leary's voice in a female character to be gruff. But I think I think you're right, but they're, maybe that should have been clarified a few more times. Right, because it's not like Roz in Monsters, Inc., where you know you need that deep, gravelly voice to suit the character, so Roz is voiced by a man. Mm-hmm. But... In this case, I it's supposed to be a joke, but it, it doesn't really land that well. I mean, and maybe that's just us looking at it now, years later. I mean, to a kid, I think that's that's what's supposed to be funny. Just plain and simple that it's a girl being mistaken or it's a guy being mistaken for a girl. Now, things are much more fluid. It's not that black and white. So that joke may not hold. Mm, it may not. I, th- I think you can still laugh at it, but you're right. There may be a modern audience that is, like you said, it's not going to land with them. But anyway, point is, I think the setup is is really good. I think the scene is very funny. Um, and I, it's, I can't help but laugh no matter how many times I saw it this week with how like enamored Flick is with them and how he believes what he's seeing is real. And they're all, all these bugs are trying to escape this bar and he's like no I need to see I need to get in there it's all very well done and I I think it does work as a good setup for where this film is going to go moving forward conversely I love it from the circus performers point of view too because my you know aside from the the really clever circus tent setup I was kind of wondering to myself why the circus why would they go with that why I mean, you could do anything, really, that, that Flick is going to the big city. You could pick any any kind of group to bring back. Um, but work, what works so perfectly with the circus performers is that that's it. They are performers. And they're really down on their luck right now because they had a bad performance. They've all been fired. So Flick comes into their lives at the most perfect time and... Without knowing it, he just exploits it and their need for attention and their need to be in front of people. So they're just all too happy to go along with this. I think that's brilliant. And that That's where the humor comes through for me in this part is that they don't care what the next gig is. They're, they're just down to go do it. Until they find out what the next gig is. 
And I'm just going to say the mural scene. The way that they find out is perfect. It is so funny. When they have this celebration, the ants, because now Flick has brought them back and they have the celebration for the warriors and the children, the blueberries, they put together a performance in the in in honor of the warriors and they have this mural and they show the the warriors killing the grasshoppers and Heimlich has been cut in half and he's got X's on his eyes and he's dead because they wanted to make it more realistic or so or so their teacher told them the performance is great everything about it the look on the face, the expression on the circus performers, this whole thing just lands so well. And for Flick, too, because you know this is not going to last very long for him. You know it's not going to end well. But this all just falls apart so beautifully. It's hysterical. Not that you want to root against Flick because he is very likable, but you you just know that the jig is up. Right. Until it's not, because now they try to escape. They get attacked by the bird. Dot has gone after them. Dot is in peril. The circus performers help save her. Poor Francis breaks his leg. Now they can't leave. So again, like, they didn't just have this change of heart. They literally cannot leave because he's laid up on the mend. Again, I think the setup is really, really smart here. No, it's very clever because... You know, with with Flick, it's different. He needs to be a part of this colony. The only reason he left was to help them. Here, the circus performers have no allegiance. They have no reason to stay. So, yes, you did have to force that. And, and the injury was the perfect way to do it because if you had just left the threat of this bird looming on the other side, you also can't really set up Hopper coming back for the rest of the food. Right. The other thing that it does so well is now, because these other insects are, for all intents and purposes, stuck with this ant colony until Francis can leave, It you, you see through montages and, and a passage of time how their stance is starting to soften as they are getting more and more familiar with these characters to the point where now they do want to step up and help them because they've befriended all of these people and they don't want to see... Hopper come back and take all of their food. I think the whole thing is just really well done. It, it the, this really does a great job of setting up those checks and balances. And there there's a reason that everything is happening and a motivation even like with Hopper um you know there his his brother is asking him why don't we just why do we have to go back? We're good where we're at. We we have enough food. Why do we have to return? And Hopper makes a point of saying we don't need their food, but we do need to establish con- to establish control over the colony because ants outnumber us a hundred to one, and if we don't show them who's boss, they could just take us. Right. And I think it's such a brilliant line. Uh, just again playing with with the idea of that group mentality. Yeah. It's it's really, really well done. I think another scene that's just so good is the moment with Ada and Flick when they realize, and it's mutual, that they are one and the same. That people are waiting for you 
to make a mistake. You're constantly under a uh, microscope and you're constantly being scrutinized so that they can pinpoint your next mistake. And Ada is in a really unique position in her life where she, for the first time, is really starting to take ownership and responsibility, not because she wants to. It's out of complete necessity. She's a fish out of water in spite of the fact that she's royalty. She's never not been royalty. She never won't be loyalty, uh, a royalty, I should say. But the fact that they mirror each other almost to a T, it's a really powerful scene. And I actually think it makes Princess Adam more likable. It's not that she's... It's just not greatly dislikable up to this point in time. Because you, you do feel bad for her because she's in over her head. But, as funny as it is, the way that she's just so quick to cast Flick out in the hopes that he never comes back, they, they had to do something to soften her, and I think that this was the right way to go about it. That's a really great point, and something that I didn't even realize is how much they parallel each other. Because, you know, obviously they're setting up the romance between them Um but because she's cast him aside so many times, yeah, I, I really didn't realize how similar they actually are. I guess because Flick kind of embraces being on the outs with everyone. And I think a little bit has to do with Ada's position. She's never going to necessarily admit that. Um, I love the scene when that takes place too, where they're building this bird. I love the idea yep, of, oh yeah, it, it's almost like a Trojan horse, even though, you know, they're not showing up at Hopper's doorstep with it. Um, I, I just love the idea. And I, I love, again, it, it's like the circus setting that they're using found items. They're using what they've got to build this bird. And I love how they employ all the strengths of the circus performers. Because the ants couldn't have done this alone. They needed Rosie's spider web to bind the twigs together to form the shell of this bird. They needed, uh, you know, the size of the bigger bugs just to get it together. Um, and and you're right. It's not just with Flick and Ada. That is the point where all of the circus performers are like, you know, we, we have to set them up for success before we leave. The other thing that it does so incredibly well is uses the change of seasons as a yes. passage of time. You know, you, you could just have a montage where they're building this bird and you understand that, you know, Rome's not built in a day and neither is the bird. But I think using the passage of season uh, as a passage of time and setting up that the grasshoppers are coming back when the last leaf falls. I think that this is just really, really smart. I think it's very unique and very different. And I love that this is this is the route that they took in showing us this passage of time. Exactly. Not a single thing is wasted. Everything has a purpose because you also need the leaves to change to get the color right on this bird. Yeah. It's so brilliant. And it, you know, it... it very subtly, you know Hopper's coming back, but this is just one of those things that visually pushes it forward and and creates that sense of urgency that your villain's coming back. Correct. Now, when he does come back after uh, his brother tries to convince him that they can they can stay where they are, they don't need to go back, and, and he has that really great scene, like you said, where he says, they outnumber us, we have to 
basically brainwash them, con- continue to keep them convinced that they need us. Um, I think that's great. I think when they make their return is great. I love that they distract them with the circus performers, and he thinks that Princess Ada has hired these performers as entertainment for them to welcome them back after the first mistake that that was the dumping of the grain into the water. And the set build is great because you took the animal cracker box, which is a circus car, and they literally used it as a circus car. And if you read the label on it, it's Casey Jr. Circus. Like, what else? You know, I love, I love, 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 love that they threw back to Dumbo here. It is such an amazing touch. And you're right. Is it on the nose? Yes, it's the animal crackers. They've always been in a in a circus car. Right. But it's well, just so clever. What else so are you going to use? Yeah, no, right? it's perfect. And the, the other great thing about it, too, is that now they're foiled because PT comes back and he exposes the circus performers for what they are to Hopper, which obviously all the ants are in on it by now. Um, and, and they've accepted them as their own. And, right. and you know, I mean, they're going to take the help either way. But um, it's it, the whole thing literally goes down in flames and it's it's perfect. Yeah. And then Hopper smacks Flick around and they all kind of just magically decide that they're going to go against Hopper and they're going to fight to protect Flick and they're going to fight for their home. It's it it's fine. It of course you had to get to that point. But I, I sort of feel like the movie for a movie that is so well paced, and, and it very much is, and you had to get there eventually, I felt that it was a little abrupt. I, I kind of felt like there was no real huge build to it it's they took offense to the fact that hopper said your bugs you're nothing you shovel dirt around which is nothing any it's no different than what he has told them a dozen times um i felt like this kind of just comes out of nowhere um well i want to think about that for a little bit because and and maybe that it's just that I haven't seen it enough time in recent years, but I feel like this film does such a good job of setting things up and paying it off. I'm wondering if it's maybe just because I haven't watched it so many times recently that it something is like not committing to memory that would set off a chain reaction where these bugs are going to stand up for themselves. Because even the most subtle things like the first time we watched this and they said Hopper's afraid of a bird, I was kind of like, okay, whatever. You know, we establish he's got the scar across his face. So we know he's been attacked. It gives us a little bit of backstory there. But I was like, that seems like just kind of an odd thing to be afraid of when he's got this whole gang behind him. And they deliver on that in so many ways because you've got the bird's nest across from the island that's keeping the circus bugs and everybody else trapped on the island. And then they use it to create this trojan horse of sorts so everything pays off is is the point that i'm trying to make um but as far as as far as the ants deciding that they're gonna step up for themselves i mean 
I think, I, I mean, it has a little bit to do with the kids because the kids go and hide in their in their clubhouse. And then once Flick gets back to them, I mean, that's when they realize they really have to make a stand because Ada sees them going up to still pull off scaring Hopper. So they know that they have to rally around these kids. Otherwise, the kids are going to be in very big trouble. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think I think the whole thing is that they realize they do have strength in numbers, which I do get what you're saying. Like it would have been a little bit better if there was more of a driving force behind that. Well, especially because not five minutes earlier did they banish Flick. Right. And maybe that's where this we don't have enough food for ourselves thing could have come into play. Right. Because Hopper does he sees what they've collected and he knocks it over and he's like, that's not nearly enough. And you you can see that it's maybe like less than half of what they collected the first time and they're supposed to deliver double the order, which is nearly impossible. Um, but maybe that is something that they could have peppered in a little bit is this idea of we don't have enough food for ourselves. So we tried collecting this for you. And, and actually, no, they do say that all of the food is gone. They gave him everything that they had left. So they don't have anything. Yeah, they have nothing. But that, I think they could have drawn a little bit more attention to it. And maybe that's the driving force behind we're taking back our anthill and we're keeping our food for ourselves and you need to go. Right. And it, it has to be because really what they're doing here is they're setting up that they are upset with what Hopper is saying and they are upset that he is slapping Flick around. However, you have twice in 90 minutes set Flick off to die. Right. So so that that can't be enough. You can't have this change of heart out of nowhere when five minutes prior you sent him off basically to die again because you have admitted that once you leave, you really don't make it back. He got lucky the first time. But with all that being said, um, I think the payoff is still good. I think it's um, watching Hopper get picked off by that bird and fed to its babies is, um, I mean, my heart doesn't bleed for Hopper. He certainly gets what's coming to him, but they drag it out. It is a slow burn and it's, they give you the POV uh, shot. It's kind of a tough visual, but it like, but I mean that in, in all the right ways, especially because not two seconds before the first time he sees the fake bird, he jumps out of his skin, literally jumps out of his skin, which I thought was such a clever touch because obviously insects do shed their exoskeletons. Yeah. But just the way that they did it to show that he was scared was so funny. It was just like the perfect little bit of comic relief there. And with him gone, it's kind of, they're all happily ever after. I do like that PT took in his brother. Yes. Because again, that's another character that doesn't really fit in with his group. Yeah, he doesn't. So, and and he lets you know that he loves the circus and he's sort of just a bumbling fool. We'll talk about the characters in a few moments here. Um, yeah, it, it's fine. Um, and the circus performers go off to, I don't know, make their millions or go perform and whatever and the well, ants are now, now free. If they burn PT... If they set him on fire with, every night, yeah, <laughs> they'll they'll sell out the crowd. No, but I I kind of like that 
that it wasn't a perfect ending where they stayed and yeah. they all worked together. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, that, that doesn't bother me. It's it's just that for some, the whole thing was well paced, and you get to the end, and it, it just ended kind of fast. Well, Heimlich is a beautiful butterfly now. That that is hysterical the way that that ends as well. Um, do you have anything else on the plot here before we move on to discuss our characters and our voice cast? No, because we kind of hit on it. The plot is pretty straightforward and simple, even though actually there was more to say about it than I thought. But I feel like the characters are what really makes this movie. Flick is played by Dave Foley. I thought Dave Foley did a good job. I actually confused him with Ed Norton at first. Um, But yeah, I mean, he's good. I thought the casting was spot on. Um, He was really popular with kids in the hall. Um, And he gave him a great life. I mean, he gave so much to that character and Flick is just very endearing. I agree. It's amazing how much he was able to give the character because he is so monotone. There's not a lot of over-the-top inflections in his voice. There's not a lot of drastic change between joy and sorrow. So for something that's so even keel, he really does create such a likable winning character. Mm -hmm. Julia Louis-Dreyfus was Princess Ada. Um, Yeah, she's good. I I mean... She's very funny, uh, not added Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Um, I mean, her casting makes sense, but I don't think this film did much to really showcase her comedic ability because she is just so funny. I don't know that it was supposed to. I think she was just the name at the time, and because, you, I mean, this is a huge cast. Yeah. But I feel like Dave Foley as the main character is probably, you know, the the lesser known out of everyone else. So I think at the time, you know, she was just at the top of her game and it didn't necessarily need to. I mean, I wish it had showcased her comedic chops a little bit more, but I don't think that that's why they cast her. No, I don't think it is either. But my point is, and it's not a knock against Julia Louis-Dreyfus. But I feel like you could have put almost any actress in this role and she would be just fine. Exactly. You get what I'm saying? Um, It's not one of those perfect instances where they put so much of the voice actor into the character where the character has a unique quirk. That's what they missed out on. Sarah Silverman as Penelope. There you go. John Goodman and uh, Billy Crystal as Mike and Sully. Tom Hanks and, uh, and Tim, Allen. Tim Allen together. You know what I'm saying? Like the, they gave so much to them, and it's it's not that Julia Louis Dreyfus doesn't. So I think it's a knock on the character more than it is the because it's not a knock on the actress. I thought she was just fine. No, it's not at all. And I mean, there's only so much you can do with an aunt. You can't necessarily make it look like her the way that, you know, they did do Sully as this big hulking guy to sort of match John Good or they cast John Goodman to match what Sully looks like, you know, like there's not there's not really anything about Julia Louis-Dreyfus physically that you're going to see in Ada because she's an aunt. However, then you look at somebody like Phyllis Diller as the queen and to me, she screams Phyllis Diller. Yeah, 
Well, I mean, they brought her on strictly for her voice, which, yeah, of course, stupid. It's an animated film, but, but that, like, that's that could that to me is not just anybody. Like, that's she was typecast, right? Exactly. And what I love too is that it's very, very subtle. But in the animation too, in the scenes where they're standing next to each other. I mean, obviously, they're going to make the queen look older because she's about to retire. But just the subtleties that they put in the body language between a younger aunt and and this older queen, it, it's just amazing how they did it. Right. I mean, it's it's the same reason why you're bringing Dennis Leary in to play Francis. Right. You're bringing him in because he's so unique. I mean, the only other actor that probably could have played Francis and done it as funny with the voice is Harvey Firestein. I love Dennis Leary in this role, but I feel like, and I don't think that this was him, I feel like the studio maybe held him back. I feel of like Of course they did. Didn't... <laughs> well, no, I'm not talking about like foul language, but I'm talking about he didn't go full throttle because... He's from Boston. He's got a very thick accent at times. I'm thinking, I mean, I was a huge fan of Rescue Me. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe he was putting it on a little bit because that was supposed to take place in New York. But I understand that maybe they didn't want to go for a specific geography. But I feel like that stereotypical tough guy accent, whether it is Boston or New York, would have gone a long way here. David Hyde Pierce plays Slim. You know, a lot of these actors that are in this movie were very much actors of their time. They were very popular at the time. But I think David Hyde Pierce did a really good job. He's very good comic relief. See, now this is a perfect example of where he is going over the top because he's supposed to be this seasoned, classically trained theater performer, and he lets you know it. Yeah, for sure. You have Jonathan Harris as Manny. Um, I grew up watching him on Lost in Space because my father loves Lost in Space. Um, he was a legend in his own time. I, I think he still is a legend. Um, and actually, this was one of his... Well, yeah, I mean, it was one of his later roles. It was one of his last roles. You know, he unfortunately passed away only a couple of years later but um for a small role I, I thought he did a really good job i agree another small role brad garrett as dim yeah you know what it is like a lot as as you really get deeper here a lot of these characters have the the, the names are bigger than the actual role brad garrett as dim very funny bonnie hunt as rosie great but didn't really get a lot of screen time. John Ratzenberger, same thing. Roddy McDowell, the same thing. This is really more about kind of giving you the caliber of cast than anything else. Um, Kevin Spacey is Hopper. Listen, I've said it on the show before. I'll give credit where credit is due. Kevin Spacey was excellent in this movie. But with all that being said, he's a dirtbag of a human being. I mean, I don't know what else you want me to tell you. It, it, he did a really good job, but he's a dirtbag. That's that's really all I can say when I, to, you know, speaking about Kevin Spacey. Now, we said the same thing, I think, when, because he was in Iron Will. Yes. You're a genius. <laughs> and that's kind of just my take on it. I'm sure that you 
basically feel the same way. No, I agree. I have nothing positive to say about him as a human being, but yeah, I mean, he, he's good in this role. He did his job. Um, and this is a great ensemble cast. I mean, that's the thing. It's, I, I, and I know it's, it's the cliche of there are no small parts. Um, but actually, th this is a good example of that because you did have this huge name talent. And even though they didn't have a lot of screen time, um, you know, I, to me, the circus performers are really what makes this movie. And, and I guess that's why, because they bounce off of each other so well. I guess that's why it was probably such an easy sell to get this name talent in these roles, even if they didn't have a lot of dialogue. Right. One we have not talked about yet, though. The scene stealer, the showstopper, Heimlich. Played by Joe Ranth. The late great. I feel like one day it would not surprise me if you see Disney do a biopic on his life because he was so influential at Disney and he had his hand in so many different films. In so many different facets too, not just as a voice actor. He was a writer, a director, producer, um, He's been in the art department, um, you know, and this is one of those classic cases. We talked about it last week with The Incredibles where Brad Bird was laying down the scratch voiceover for Edna. And, you know, they'll they'll do that. I mean, they do it all the time. I've done it for shows that I've worked on where to get the pacing and the timing right, you just have to read the script right. and give the editor something to cut to. Um and this was one of those classic examples is they needed somebody to scratch in Heimlich and they just loved what he was doing with the voice so much. And I think this is a great example of where you injected the personality into the character so much. And I think that that's why that's why he was cast, because he he just knew Heimlich inside out and nobody else could do it. Well, they brought somebody else in. They wouldn't say who the actor was, but they brought somebody else in to read the lines and they said that when they would test the, the shots side by side, they said that Joe Ramp would get all of the laughs and the other actor didn't. And that's how they kind of decided, like, yeah, we're going to have to stick with him because he's just doing it so well. If I had to guess, just based on the time period and the rest of the cast, my money would be on either Kelsey Grammer or Jason Alexander. Uh, yeah... Yeah, because, I mean, if it were Robin Williams, there's no way they're not going to cast him. And he was already the genie anyway. Um, I bet we're never going to know. But I feel like, especially in the 90s, I felt like David Hyde Pierce and Kelsey Grammer, they were kind of a package deal. Right. You didn't really always get one without the other. So, yeah, that would have made sense. That would have made sense. But we got the film we got, and we got the right actor. Um, that is for sure. Um, you want to talk about, like you said, there, there are, there aren't any small roles, but there are small people and you had two child actors in this film that later went on to have amazing careers. One outlasted the other Hayden Penetieri. Uh, she plays dot. And I kind of like had written as a joke, um, in my notes. Oh, it's a little kid. Hire little Hayden Penetier. Um, As we've learned, when in doubt, assume it's Hayden Penetier. 
or Ashley Tisdale. Ashley Tisdale is in this movie as one of the blueberries. And obviously we know Disney loved her. She went on to go do the high school musical films. That little film? Yeah, that little film. Um, and, and her career's tapered off considerably more so than Hayden Penetieri, who has gone on to you know do a lot more. But um, both of them are in the Disney bubble because Hayden Penetieri did a few films for them as well. Um, Remember the Titans comes to mind. Um, we know that when Disney gets your hand, when they get their hands on somebody, they're going to reuse them, right? Uh, we we know this about them, and I think um, they were both fine. I mean, they were good. Dot's Dot's cute. She's a lot of fun. I like her as a character. Me too. I love the relationship that she develops with Flick. I love that she's always trying to make everyone else see the best in him. And I feel like they tried to make her the heart and soul of this movie. And that's not to say that she's not, but I don't feel like they gave her enough screen time to be that person because really Flick is the heart and soul and he should be. He's the main character. But I guess that's it. You give you give Ada the bigger arc. Dot doesn't really have a huge arc. She's she's just the cheerleader the entire time. And she's likable and she's wonderful. Um but she doesn't have that big character moment the way that everybody else does. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about a few other things before we kind of give our final say on this here. Um I want to talk about well, first, you mentioned Randy Newman before. Um I I love the music. I love the score of this film. I think it plays hand in hand so well with what you're seeing on screen. And I love the creativity of the music. Like when the ants specifically are playing music during their celebration of the warriors, like audibly, it sounds like something I'd hear in Pandora. Does that, does that make sense? It does. It does. It's, it's all just very well done and it fits the world they created. What strikes me is the opening score. I mean, I said when we first met Flick, it was a little bit derivative of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, even though Randy Newman did not score that film. Um, I mean, this you can definitely tell this is Randy Newman. I would not say that it's derivative of Toy Story. But what's funny to me is that opening score, when we see the tree and we're going into the island it almost sounds a little bit like a Western to me. And that's where I really make the Toy Story connection other than that it sounds similar. You think Western, you think of Woody. Um, So I kind of wish there was a little bit more of, of a differentiation there. But at the same time, the Western works because you are sending Flick out into the world on his own. And, you know, with Hopper there is this idea of this town's not big enough for the both of us. So in a weird way, even though it is very similar to Toy Story, it works here. I want to talk about some production notes too, because a lot of what they did was very interesting. The controversy around this film, I think is also very interesting. I want to hold that for a second. When it came Where to you find this stuff, what controversy? I have controversy. When it comes to researching animals, Disney has been well known for bringing an animal into a room and drawing it. And they, and they, they observe it and they watch it so that they can get it as lifelike as possible. 
Right. We all know the clip of Walt when they were doing Bambi. He brought the deers in and he's petting the deer and we all love it. And it was so lovely and endearing. And then Jeffrey Katzenberg had to outdo that times a million with a lion. Mm-hmm. Um, how exactly does Disney do this with an insect, though? And the story is just incredible. What I would have assumed is that the filmmakers maybe went into their backyards with the kids and, you know, as like a fun little project with them, either, you know, like catch and release some bugs, study them for a little while. No. What they did was, in the grand tradition of Disney and Pixar, they brought the bugs to them. They brought them in the studio and... You know, it's a bug. It's not going to do much when it's not in its natural habitat. So they put them on these little conveyor belts. It's like a little buggy treadmill. And they would make them run to study the movement. And I just thought this was hysterical that that's how they got them to do it. But I mean, really, how else are you going to get them to move? But now comes time for the controversy. And you brought up Jeffrey Katzenberg before. Oh, not where I thought this was going. He wasn't eaten by the lion, but I'm pretty sure the people at Disney wished that he was when it came to the release of this film. Because, because, right before Disney releases A Bug's Life, which was a film that was in production while Katzenberg was working there, a new animation studio called DreamWorks, partly owned by, oh yeah, that's right, Jeffrey Katzenberg, announces the film Ants, which is released one month prior to A Bug's Life. You know, I do remember when that happened, but as a kid, you're not going to read that much into it because I feel like that happened so often when we were kids was that they would be releasing two movies that were very similar or Mm -hmm. even, you know, when you're a kid, you think everything's a Disney movie, but then they'll, they'll come out with something like Fern Gully or a troll in Central Park or Thumbelina. And then you find out it's not Disney and you're like, oh my gosh. But even still, you know, studios do that. They jump on trends. So it's not out of the realm of possibility where somebody pitched this movie about, you know, putting yourself scaling down and, and getting in that bug POV. And some studio exec is like, great, write up a script. And, you know, the same thing is happening at another studio. What are kids into these days? Bugs? Okay, let's do that. You know, so it's not a total coincidence that you've got these two films coming out. But especially, I I mean... They're ants. They're ants with an ensemble cast. Right. And because at the time, Jeffrey Katzenberg went from one studio to another, I'm not saying that if A Bug's Life was in development, he took that idea somewhere else. But if it walks like a duck... Of course he took the idea and he walked (laughs) away with it. Are you kidding me? But but how do you gun it out a month before? That's insane. Well, because he tried to extort them. At least that's what Disney says. He tried to get Disney to not, if I remember this correctly, he did not want A Bug's Life to be released against 
uh, Prince of Egypt, I think was the name of the film um, that they had put out, that, that DreamWorks was getting ready to put out. So he was willing to delay the release of Ants so that it wasn't on top of Disney. So I think he was going to give Disney the first shot at having this bug movie, but he wanted A Bug's Life to have a release date that didn't coincide with the Princes of Egypt or Prince of Egypt or whatever it was. And Disney accused him of trying to extort them, so then he went and released it anyway and made sure his came first. (laughs) All told, I haven't seen Ants in a long time. I don't think I've ever seen it. I knew somebody who had a cousin that worked on it, and we actually went and saw it in the movies for this kid's birthday because his cousin was in the credits. And without having seen this in a long time, I remember being a 12-year-old boy, and I liked A Bug's Life, but I loved Ants. So I kind of think I need to go back at some if soon, really, wherever it is I can find the movie. I, I want to go back and revisit it and see if it holds up, um, if I still like it more than A Bug's Life, because I can tell you that as much as I liked A Bug's Life as a kid, I like it more as an adult. Now, maybe that, maybe that spoils my final review, but, you know, 12 years old, 12-year-old boy, you know, you are in that in-between where... Is Disney still cool? And to an extent, it it, it is, and it was. Um, I think that they offer more for a 12-year-old boy now than they did in the late 90s. Um, but I do need to go revisit that. And if you've never seen it, we have to sit you down and watch it. I have never seen it. And I'm also very interested to watch now because I'm wondering if said actor that shall not be named for Heimlich ended up in Ants, and maybe that's why they won't give up the name. It could be. It very well could be. Let's talk about the animation here because I think this animation is still so good. I, I think it looks I think it looks great. Um I think the world build is great. I think the details I mean, I'll put it to you this way. I think that they're I think the animation in this at times is better than the animation in the Incredibles. In the first one, not in the second one. The second one is basically flawless. But there are scenes in The Incredibles where I feel like I'm watching a video game, and I don't get that feel here at all. See, this this was a tough undertaking for their second film because in Toy Story, they're toys, obviously. You know, you want them to look plastic. And even where they do the humans when Andy's in it, when Sid's in it, you know they're not supposed to be so incredibly detailed. They weren't going for for perfect accuracy there. Here, I feel like they were trying to be very detailed with obviously, you know, the grass and and shrinking down to the anthill and, you know, they keep going back to the rocks throughout the film. Um, there there are some things that are incredibly detailed, but there are other things where this screams, yes, this is the second movie after Toy Story. Like, even in the first shot, you know, you said with the island earlier that, that it was mm-hmm. so amazing. To me, I look at that and it feels every bit its age because I feel like there's so much negative space. I mean, you don't need much other than the tree. But I feel like there are a lot of shots where there is just open sky where there should be a little bit more detail. 
But I feel like that was time well spent elsewhere, like in the city scene or, um, you know, in, in detailing the things like the grass, the grasshoppers to me look even better than the ants. What's amazing about the build of the grasshoppers is that they're menacing and they're scary, but they're not scary enough where a child is not going to want to watch the movie. Right. I think that's that's incredibly impressive to me. I know they struggled with the translucent colors because you have sunlight shining through blades of grass and shining through leaves and you have characters standing on top of plants, standing behind plants, grabbing them, interacting with them. And I know that, that they've said, and John Lasseter has said, that that was a very big struggle for them. And, I mean, I think they pulled it off. I think it still looks great. See, that looks amazing. And, and I think that's probably where they spent more time than on things like like backgrounds. You know, they got the details of the grass. They got the de- the details in those more translucent elements. But, and I mean, it, it pays off. It really does. Because those things, I think, would scream a lot louder if they didn't look right then okay maybe we have a little bit too much negative space in the background i'm i mean i'm i'm nitpicking with it really um because the rest of it is is pretty incredible mm-hmm. okay final thoughts you want to go first you can go first okay the movie is not flawless but it's almost as close to perfect as a movie's going to get it's not a film that needs an entire land, so I can understand why Disney closed it to make room for the Avengers in Disneyland. Um, I wish they would close A Bug's Life because I think it's horrendous. I-, I would I would like to see them get repurposed because I think the attraction, it just doesn't do it for me. I think it's actually kind of obnoxious. Um, but I don't think this movie should be forgotten about, and it is. I think it's a better movie than a lot of people give it credit for. I mean, even the people at Disney have gone so far as to say it's forgotten to the point where it's become an annual ritual to have a, and it's done tongue-in-cheek, to have a dramatic reading of the script. I love that. Because the movie really just has kind of been cast aside, which is funny considering the fact that they developed an entire land at a park and then they made an attraction inside one of the visual weenies at Walt Disney World. So it is kind of strange that the movie gets cast aside. I wonder if... uh, Listen, the younger generation has no idea that Ants came out at the exact same time, but I think for people of a certain age, they remember when those movies came out on top of each other, and Ants did come first. And again, I'm only speaking as a 12-year-old boy. Ants was the superior movie. So I, even though this... This did better in the box office than Ants did. I just think that because Ants came first, at the time, it seemed like the better movie. I will get back to you on this eventually and let you know if it still is or if it isn't. Um, I feel like this was very easily cast aside. It shouldn't be. It's it's a better movie than that. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, it's to me, it's near perfect. Wow. I would agree with most of what you were saying. This is definitely a forgotten favorite, which is kind of odd considering there was a whole land dedicated to it that 
obviously you still have it's tough to be a bug and it's not just any old attraction. I mean, it's it's in the weenie, like you said. Yeah, I mean, think about Spaceship Earth. You know what I'm saying? Like, the, the, you're kind of putting that in the same category. Exactly. And those are rides that they really believe in. Right. I don't think they just stuck it's tough to be a bug in there to be clever. I mean, it is, and it's perfect because you're below the tree, you're in the ground, so the theming, it, it's seamless there, really. But, you know, they didn't put dinosaur in the tree for a reason. Correct. And that has nothing to do with there's an entire land of dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. I, I'm saying it's that way for a reason. So clearly they believed in this. Um, but I think what makes this sort of forgotten and... And it's not something that's a standout like Toy Story, like Monsters, Inc., like The Incredibles, is what we were talking about earlier, that this film is not as layered as some of those, where you are getting more out of it as an adult than you did as a kid. And I I almost it's almost strange for me to say that because I did get more out of it this time around than I ever did as a kid. You know, as a kid, you think it's a fun movie. Um, But I don't think that there was anything that I was necessarily relating to more now as an adult. Like there wasn't, you know, I'm not sitting here saying I saw myself so much more in Princess Ada than I ever did. I'm just saying that some of the themes that they were hitting on go right over your head as a child. So it's not like something that ages with you like Toy Story where you thought Buzz and Woody were great but then when you look at it through the lens of Andy and and loving your toys as a child to them not really having a place in your life anymore that's something that is timeless that is something you know it's what spawned two more amazing sequels and the one that we don't even acknowledge you know there's a reason that A Bug's Life didn't get a sequel and I think that's because you know they told a very complete story but it's not like Incredibles either where you can keep relating to this different family dynamic the older that you get yeah well they I mean the thing was it was supposed to have a sequel they canceled it you know what I'm saying like it's just so strange to me that you would put so much into the parks revolving around this film and up until recently one of those parks still had a land. The other park still has an entire attraction. This is a very good movie, but for some reason, Disney has kind of buried it as if it's some failure. I feel like they treat it like Gurgi's Munchies and Crunchies oh God. was a stand in the Magic Kingdom. That was a That was a stand where you could get snacks in the Magic Kingdom. I don't even know if I ever knew that. Yep. So the Black Cauldron got a spot. I don't know why they're trying to bury this like it's the Black Cauldron. Right. Especially when the social commentary is so relevant now as far as this idea of putting an individual ahead of the group. Or, you know, that that's what this film is trying to debunk. Right. Is... is focus on the greater good um that's incredibly relevant now and that is a timeless theme really um but 
I feel like, and I, I was sort of saying that before, is that I feel like that theme is sort of too big for a kid. And a kid is not going to get much more out of it than these are some really fun characters and they build a bird and scare off the grasshoppers. And I think that that's why as far as not having it in your regular repertoire, I feel like that's kind of why as a child you just sort of leave it in your past. It's a fun movie. It's funny. And that's really it. Even for us, it's never really had the rewatchability. And the only reason we circled around to it was because we wanted to review it for the show. Right. Um, so I can see how it's forgotten about, but I don't see why. Mm-hmm. Because it is a really great movie. Is it one of my favorites? No, that's not to say that I don't like it. Is it as good as Toy Story, The Incredibles? No, it doesn't really hold a candle to any of those films, but that's not to say that it's a bad movie. It's a really great movie. It's a fun story. It's got great characters. It's got an incredible cast, and it doesn't deserve to be buried in the vault the way that it is. We're interested in knowing what you have to say about A Bug's Life. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the Week is coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Olani in Hawaii, get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. Or even if you've already booked reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News of the Week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. Whether you are looking for graphic design, media kits, wedding invitations, perhaps save the dates, thank you cards, or maybe you just need that touch of Disney in your home with some home decor. Kelly has you covered. Plus, listeners of Monoreal Radio get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to check out everything she has to offer at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. Okay, news this week. Tokyo Disney Sea. They are getting an expansion. It's not opening until 2023, but they are getting some new lands based on some tried and true Disney favorites. Frozen, Tangled, and Peter Pan are all getting added to Fantasy Springs. They didn't have anything Peter Pan before this? They probably, well, no, they'd have it at uh, Tokyo Disneyland because that is literally a carbon copy of Disneyland in Anaheim. So they'd have Peter Pan's flight. That ride never has less than an 80 minute wait. But they're doing more with it, apparently. I don't know. I I can't, I can't speak. Maybe they're going to do like a Neverland Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't speak to how popular Peter Pan is in Japan. That would be cool, though, because looking at the artwork, it looks like this sort of big mountain. So there, there is, I guess, a lot that you could do with Neverland. However, and I'm sorry, listeners, I hate to tell you this, but I'm going to say this every week that a park announces something new. Can we please clear the barges out of the lake in Epcot before we spend more money on other projects? Well, Disney's going to have a lot less money to spend 
very, very soon. Oh, boy. Because the other bit of news this week, and I, I said, I said it, I said it, I said it. I said it, I said it. Did I, did I remind you? I said it. Spider-Man was staying with Disney. I said there is no way, no way on earth Disney is going to let Spider-Man just go. I, we, Tom Holland got brought back on. I said, that's great. But Disney is not going to let Spider-Man go. You can't. It's too, pardon the pun, tangled into the Avengers at this point. So they didn't. And they won't. At the cost of three billion dollars. Oh my God. Billion with a B. That's what Sony is getting to make sure that Spider-Man goes to Disney Plus starting with the 2022 theatrical slate. Because right now they have until 2026, they've got Spider-Man on the slate. This is Sony. This is what Disney has to pay them to get it on Disney Plus. Now this makes sense. It does make sense from a business perspective for both of them, for both of them. Disney is going to better than recuperate the $3 billion they spent. I mean, we're talking about it at the time of this recording, five, six years from now. They're going to better than recuperate. I mean, Sony is not just going to let Spider-Man go. Right. And even with all of the issues that the industry is facing right now, they will make it back. Think about how insane we all thought it was when Disney bought both Star Wars and Marvel for the insane price tags that they did. Think about how, I mean, they have made money hand over fist. It's, I think Savvy's alone probably could have recouped what they spent. So the same thing will be said here for Spider-Man. It's a lot of money up front, but it makes sense for both sides. Right, and it's going to pay off because we know that we have the ride coming. Correct. But that is our big news for this week. And I think it's good. I think it's good news. I, I think it, it, Disney has to do what they have to do at this point. And, and that's, they're going to get extorted, right? We, we kind of know the other studios are going to do this because Disney owns every franchise. They own the MCU. They own Star Wars. Now they have Avatar. I don't know. I hear that we've got more, more Avatar movies are coming. I've been hearing that for 10 years. But... <laughs> They're buying up everything. They're buying up every franchise. So this is what these other studios are going to do. And, and in a way, it's like, and I'm a Disney ally, but it's what they have to do. Right. And I mean, I know that sounds like, I mean, it is an incredible amount of money. And I I understand where it seems crazy, but I think we do have to appreciate that Disney is going to bat for the fan base here. Because what you have to keep in mind is that... You know, they've acknowledged that we're going to do the multiverse. We know that that's coming eventually, but this is also part of Disney's way of keeping it canon for the fans because who knows what would have happened if now it's going to change hands back to Sony's complete control and what they would have done. Are they going to build off of Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, God forbid? Are they going to go the route of Andrew Garfield? You know, like... There's too many what-ifs here. Exactly. And I'm glad that Disney, you know, even though it's coming at a very high price tag, is going to address all of that. Right. We want to know what you have to say about the Disney uh, expansions at Tokyo Disney Sea. 
let us know what you have to say about the three billion dollars that Sony will be getting in regards to the rights for Spider-Man and making sure that all goes to Disney Plus. Again, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget all of that social media. We're also on TikTok at Monoreal Radio. Like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you need links to the show, to any of the social media, the email, whatever it is that you need, it's all online at monorealradio.com. Thank you guys so much again. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.